This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, radiotherapists far and wide. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I am Dr Doolittle and as usual, we have a lot to discuss this morning. Today in the studio, we have a special guest, Dr. Yannicka Blaylands, a senior lecturer in experimental methods in the Business Behaviour Lab at RMIT. Yannicka is here to tell us about an interesting project to create a type font to aid memory. Yes, you heard me right, a font or typeface, um, and it's called Sans Forgetica, and it's specifically designed to enhance memory retention. Hmm... I probably need it. I'm the most forgetful person in the world. Also in the studio, we have Dr Capri, our resident family medicine expert, who is going to talk about the art, the subtle, the subtle art of saying no as a clinician. No to requests that the patient might be keen on, but the clinician thinks will not be helpful. Dr Capri has some tips on saying no without upsetting anyone, including the patient. Plus, Dr Trainer Wills, our favourite medical student. She's been scouring the papers, not the scientific papers, mind you, just the newspapers. And she has a little bit of news for us, which we'll get to in a second. And finally, the panel beater, our universityologist. He's been at university for so long, everyone, including him, has actually forgotten what he does. He's here to push our buttons, both physical and metaphorical. And let's start with a bit of the news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. And we are at Radiotherapy. Hello, everyone. Hello, team. Let's start with the croakiest, most... <laughs> You're a bit croaky, Dr. Capri. I am. Why are I you croaky? Have you got, uh, like, an upper respiratory yeah, tract infection had, had or something terri- like that? I had that? a terrible viral thing. I heard you were dancing till late last night and uh, drunk at a wedding. Was that... Okay, am I, okay. I, have I got false <laughs> I know, information? I don't know who told you that. Yes, no, I had a really lovely... Uh, we, I went to a wedding last night and had a great time. Do we have to but, do a shout-out to anyone who got married? Uh, Linda and David. Oh, well done, Linda and David. Congratulations. Yeah, I don't know why I got married. I doubt they're they're listening. Well, why did you want to be a government paper? Why not just live together and be happy ever after? Anyway, who am I to judge? Yeah, exactly. What about you, Trainer Wheels? How are you? Not bad, not bad. I think I maybe even got a bit more sleep than Capri last night, which is remarkable given that I've got a small baby. Yeah, Mm. so you're, you know, you've got, your sleep is due to being a new mum. Yeah. Which is a happier insomnia. The insomnia of being a new mum (laughs) or the insomnia of dancing all night and being drunk. Which is your happier insomnia? It's a good question. In the long run, probably. In the long run, new mum, surely. Yeah. And what sure. about you? Did you get any sleep over there, panel? I last... I um, had a... My night out was on Friday night. I had a nice one. But last night was a lot more restful. Did you have a quiet one? Relatively speaking. Responsible knowing you had the radio yes. the next day. Is that right? Yes. As is always the case. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Universityologists. You're so responsible. Oh, Universityologist. Now, uh, we're just adding that to a growing list yeah. of my uh, profile description, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Easy one to live up to, Easy, that one. Easy one to live up to. <laughs> never, I've no, I don't think I've ever had the same description twice, have I? No, no, it's brilliant. One <laughs> of these, these days, just like those monkeys in a room, randomly typing for infinity, <laughs> eventually come up with Shakespeare, one day I'm going to get it right. <laughs> there is no right. <laughs> hey, uh, why don't we kick off with some news? Yeah, sounds um, good. Over to you, Trainer Wills. What do you got for us? Last time I was on here a month ago, we talked a bit about how MSF had been removed from Nauru. 
And MSF Medicine Sans Frontiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. And since then, there's been a growing movement from the public and from various medical bodies to get, particularly the kids off Nauru, but I think sort of everybody. Yep. But, um, ideally. Um, so this week, the good news was that the government is planning to get all the kids off Nauru by the end of the year. So that's great. I sort of feel like I've been hearing this for 10 years. Yeah, and I also think it's mm-hmm. that, you know, it's not really case closed yet because there's still adults there and they're not having a good time either. I think we surely we care a bit about adults well, too. Didn't, didn't Tony have it recently come out and say it's not a it's bad lovely. Yeah. Yeah. It's lovely. Yeah. 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 For, for a couple of hours. The yeah. weather's yeah. quite good. Yeah, and George Brandis said, oh, there are hardly any kids left on Nauru, really. Right. There are only a few and we're going to get them off by the end of the year. I thought, yeah, but they've been there half a decade. Well, we have not... had that end of year stuff for a while. I mean, I know we've had various professors and stuff who are part of the movement to try and um, address this issue on this show and other shows around Melbourne for, you know, for the better part of five years. And yep. so, but it, it does seem, uh, there seems to be hope this there's time. There's something yes. happening at least. But from what I can gather, there's a bit of, we're lacking some clarity over whether the dads of these kids are coming with them. It sounds like potentially it's only the mums coming with them. So it's not mm-hmm. whole families coming. And of course it leaves, you know, close to a few thousand. You're just creating a different type of psychological stress for these Exactly families. right. Yep. So, them. But the essence is we seem to have bipartisan support now that it's actually a good idea to get them off. Yes. That seems to be the change. Rather At least there's than, something happening. Yep. yep. Okay, but still watch, I'll watch this watch space. Watch this space, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly and keep right. the pressure up, I'm assuming. Yep. Yep. But they're still only coming for health care, right? They're, they're effectively still detained. They're not in the community. Yeah, I don't know, actually. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Mm, so what, what does that mean? Does that mean they're detained in some sort of um, facility. institution facility? I, I guess some kind of health service clinic type situation is, is my understanding. And I guess that it. means their wrong. families aren't given work rights and residential. Exactly. Mm, yep. yeah, okay. Do you think as a community we are just a bit burnt out over this issue, even though we're all behind it? You know, it, it's, it has been going on so long that there's this sense of how do you keep pressure up when it sort of feels like the pressure that's been kept up for five years by people a lot, you know, quite prominent academics and, you know, medical people and the various health people, not just medical, obviously, in the community. Do, do, yeah, how do you, uh, I, I think mean, it depends who you speak to, though, because I think there's still large parts of the community that think it's a good thing to be stopping the boats and closing the borders and blah, yep. blah, blah. Yep. You know, we sort yep. of get in a bit of a bubble. Well, a lot of people in a select few electorates think mm. that, don't they? Mm-hmm. Because I think, um, you know, the general polling, you know, if we do a population polling, um, most Australians aren't really enthusiastic about offshore detention. No. Um, it just so happens that in some key electorates, they're quite significantly in favour of them and those electorates are the swing seats and therefore they get the attention. Also, I, I, I've, I've got to be in my bonnet lately about it's conflating various issues. So, you know, the bigger issue is people are concerned about the, um, the culture of our country and what it means to have high migration rates. So that's, that's the bigger issue. And then that flows on to all these other things that includes people having support for putting people on Nauru. Now, you know, when I say we conflate issues, now if we split those issues apart, we can say... I as a per- you as a person might decide, yes, you are concerned about our culture and you want it to stay relatively similar similar to as it is. You want multiculturalism, but you don't want it to change things too much. Yet at the same time, you can... And so you can have an approach that I don't want high rates of people coming in um, through the non-traditional migration channels. You can believe that and have... But you can also believe that certain ways that we stop that aren't healthy. For yeah. example, putting children on islands. Um, you might believe that stopping boats is great, but that 
that doesn't mean you have to support having children on islands. <laughs> and so, you know, and you see this all the time with lots of issues at the moment where people are conflating mm. um, conflating issues. I, I think we're seeing it with, in particular, sexual harassment in the workplace. You know, yes. where, you know, like, I've Good been point. following the Jeffrey Rush case yes. quite closely. And whilst that illustrates a whole lot of things about um, sexually inappropriate behaviour in the workplace, um, it seems to me that it keeps getting conflated with things like, say, Harvey Weinstein. And now no one's accusing Jeffrey Rush of rape, yet the way it's talked about sometimes, yes, it has that same... same and so I, I, I see the same thing happening with debates in... The, mm. And I think it's a feature of social media. I see it with so many debates. And in this particular debate, I see people in favour of keeping people on islands. When, when you tease it out, that's not what they're in favour mm. of. What they're in favour is of keeping a certain you know, vision of what Australia looks like. We have to be able to be more subtle and split debates to ba- apart with much greater subtlety than we are currently doing in our social media context. Does that make sense? Yeah. I yeah. feel like I've just got on my soapbox and I'm about to step down. Back to you, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I think I agree with you, Doolittle, that we need a bit more subtlety and nuance and I think it's tricky when politicians are adopting three-word slogans for yeah, us to have any sense of oath. complexity. Mm, bloody oath. I think the politics is, is the, the problem. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. Um, you got uh, more? Yeah, a little bit of light I want more news. from you. Sure. More. Yeah, I got more. I got more. I've got plenty. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of lighter news this week. The, the WHO announced that rubella has, is considered eliminated in Australia now. So that's oh. just good news. We've got high vaccination rates and it's working. That's great. Although there have been cases of rubella. Yeah, but it sounds like most of them are not haven't been caught within Australia. So we're talking about, yeah, Australian-born rubella. I suppose yes, so, yeah, because yeah, the vaccination rate apparently is now 94% of five-year-olds. Mm. Uh, just roughly, just can, can you remind us what rubella is? Um, it's, <laughs> a, it's a viral illness and yep. it causes a, um, a very mild illness uh, uh, um, I'm Mild struggling. response in adults, no, but if yeah, you get yeah. it when so you, you get it, you get you get a fever, you get a rash, um, and uh, and it's not very common now, obviously, because we've, we've eradicated. The problem with it is that even though it's a mild illness, if you are pregnant and in the early stages of in the first and second trimester, particularly the first trimester, and you are infected with this virus, then your but your fetus is at risk of having congenital abnormalities, particularly deafness, uh, mental retardation, and other. Stillbirth. And, and so and we've been stage, like yeah. we've been now immunising mm. against rubella since I was a Long bambino. Time. 70s, um, yeah. So, yeah, so we're going back, you know, since I was born, like yep. 25, 30 years, even longer. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my favourite joke. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, um, and so or after all those years, if you eventually do it enough, the idea is you actually eradicate the illness from the community. And yes. so it's considered that in Australia now we're pretty much, there's not enough rubella around for it to catch on and we're pretty much... Okay, but yep. we still have to keep immunising, obviously. Yes, yeah, yeah, yep. yep. and there are pockets of obviously. It's un, what is it, ninety four percent? Did you say? Yeah, um, there are people who are conscientious objectors on behalf of their their children, and there is an issue where if you if you're a, 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 a female infant and your parents decide not to vaccinate you, you can get to be fifteen and of the reproductive age and not be vaccinated uh, against rubella and not necessarily know it because. Your parents have chosen on your behalf, and then and that has happened. Uh, not that not that there have been any, um, uh, not to my knowledge, um, that perhaps there have been um, cases of um, congenital rubella 
um, problems, but there is the potential for young girls to not know they're not vaccinated against. And that's why we screen in pregnancy, right? Yeah, that's right. So we have to keep just you just have to keep up all the checks and balances, even though it's been eradicated. uh, I don't think that means we can be complicit because obviously, as you say, people can bring it in. And especially given how much we travel now, yeah, you know, most young people travel overseas, so you don't want to sit back and say I don't really need to be vaccinated because I'm in Australia and it's the same. You know, yes, because the whole problem with not vaccinating now, of course, is what if you travel? You, You know, you're largely safe in countries that have really high rates of vaccination. Um, but, yeah, if you decide you want to travel overseas, you're not. Yeah, that's, that's right. You guys have been following the, um, uh, the caravan, so-called caravan, moving up through Central America towards the United States? No, Only incredibly no. peripherally. Because I've been away at a conference for the last week, so I haven't right. been reading newspapers, but I've seen just one or two comments. Right, so there's a, there's a, a few thousand people, um, well, reports vary, but a, a, a sizable number of people migrating, effectively, um, through Central America up towards the US border, and this has become an, a matter for the midterm elections, in, in a sense. But the relevance to the conversation just had was that in um, his efforts to generate some fear in mm-hmm. the US electorate. Mm. He said that they're bringing... He you being know, Donald Trump, Trump, you mean? Yeah. You haven't even said the T-word. He's a fear monger himself. Funny you, you know man. He who shall not be named. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call him Voldemort. <laughs> so he's listed all of these things that are you know we should uh, be concerned about and in, he included that they're bringing smallpox. Of oh. course, which is, erad- you know, speaking of eradicated yes. diseases, something yes. was eradicated a long time ago. Yes. Yeah. Mm. He's very And good, that's, you know, long gone. Mm. <laughs> but, it's, you know, the point being, you know, that you can generate fear out of disease mm. yes. and um, general public awareness of what's eradicated, what's not, what's tested for at various periods during pregnancy, for example, mm. are really useful public knowledges to, to have. And mm. a politician can just, with a throwaway line like that... Mm. Um, instill great uncertainty. And rubella vaccination is part of the MMR, isn't it, that they always talk about? Measles, mumps, rubella. And and all kidlets get that pretty much. Yeah, and they get a booster as well. So there's usually two um, before they get to the teenage years. And then then everyone's tested in uh, pre-pregnancy or in early pregnancy to make sure their their level of protection is still adequate. And if not, then they get a booster. booster. So, yeah. yeah, nice. Yeah. Do you have anything else? Or I do, if we have time. Yeah, we'll do one well. more. Yeah, we've got time for one more. Uh, what was it again? Oh, yeah, last week Miss Medic was talking about Westmead Hospital, their ICU being stripped of their training accreditation. Okay, Westmead's in Sydney, in if Sydney. I remember correctly. Yes, and this was because of allegations of bullying in the department. Right. Uh, and this week another hospital has been embroiled in the same situation. So Royal Prince Alfred's cardiothoracic surgery department has lost its training accreditation this week as On well. On the basis of bullying? Yep. So the college was uh, reviewing its accreditation status and found... Oh, hang on, I've got this quote. So the the Sydney Morning Herald... While you're finding out the quote, I'll just explain. So all hospitals have training departments and all teaching hospitals, that's how they teach their junior doctors. And if you're not accredited... It means you can't advertise, attract and have junior doctors in your department, which means your department will fall over because the junior doctors are the, you know, residents and registrars who run the place. The consultants pop in and, I'm not pop in, but come in and supervise and oversee all the treatment. No no accreditation, no junior doctors, you're gone. Yep, so it's a big deal. Accreditation's a big deal. And So the Sydney Morning Herald said that college representatives uncovered alleged bullying and dysfunction during the department's recent accreditation review, deeming it an inappropriate environment to train Australia's next generation of surgeons that is just that's pretty big why, deal, right? i mean for me why do they not 
say, okay, this is what you need to put in place in order to stay accredited, you know, lift your game, rather than shut the whole thing down. Well, they down. do normally. Oh, so, so that's there probably must be so bad. And they still haven't Or it's so bad. And even then, when they um, cut it off, they still keep it going with, you know, because they can't just, those junior doctors who yeah. are currently in the department can't just walk out and not have a job. Okay. So they normally um, put in a process where, okay, you've got... Uh, one or two years and we're doing three monthly reviews and we want an interim plan and you might need some external supervision, you might need some external people coming in, we need proof. So they can't shut it down and they never shut it down overnight. So that's like, even more uh, um, extraordinary that they haven't managed to, you know, pick up their game absolutely. to a point that they can't maintain that I bet they haven't closed it down. I bet there's ongoing, you know, there'll, there'll be ongoing stuff. Like on, on Wednesday, for example, I'm going down to Hobart to, um, to give some shoots for their, they've had problems with accreditation for a few years now for other reasons, not bullying, with mm. staff numbers and stuff. Mm. And so they've had a program going for a couple of years now where um, in all sorts of departments, specialists from Melbourne fly down and provide extra external tutorials and stuff. And um, so there's a, there's a whole process around mm. it. They don't just, they don't just you know, walk in and do it um, mm. blindly. They'll, mm. they'll, there's reviews and other opinions and stuff like that. But it's illustrative. You, you know what this one illustrates more than anything? The fact that I think finally bullying and harassment you know, we've been trying to take it seriously in hospitals for about a decade yep. and we've been it's been piecemeal. You know, we get each we go a little bit further. Like the College of Surgeons, for example, have a pretty fantastic, I think, because I watched all their videos. They produced all this information, they try and do training, and it's been going on for a while. And now it's trying to actually get down to the coal face. Mm-hmm. And that's incredibly hard because there's an there's a whole lot of systemic processes that have been in place for hundreds of years yep. that that hide it. It takes major cultural change for this stuff to really change. Mm. And I think... I'm quite hopeful, actually, that maybe this is sort of the start of some real change happening. It's It's obviously very drastic. Exactly, yeah. Seems to be like it's actually going to happen. Mm. Well, that's all good news. Hey, um, good news stories. I like them. What am I going to say? It's not good news for that department. No, but I'm thinking it's good news for that, you know... for the the landscape of, yeah, future... Departments. But no, but I liked your theme. We're finally getting some good news on Nauru. We've got some good news about a vaccine that's been so successful it's now almost eradicated a disease from Australia, it seems. And, you know, some rubber hitting the road, disaccreditation-style yeah. consequences yeah. for a problem that we've all seen for decades. So I'm in a really positive mood as we throw to a break. Three triple R. And we're back. You were listening to Radiotherapy. Hey, uh, everyone, we've got a special guest in the studio, studio um, Dr. Yannicka Blaylins. Oh, you're going to have to pronounce that properly because I'm going to get it wrong. Although, as j- jump on the mic and pronounce it for me, Yannicka. Yannicka Blaylavens. Blaylavens. Because, you know, I got my pronunciation because I, I watched a video of you talking about what you're about to talk about now and introduce yourself. And I played it about five times and thought I got it right. So I'm blaming you for my incompetence. <laughs> is that fair? Sure. Hey, yeah, I'm going to throw, though, to the panel beater, who is going to intro this segment and uh, launch us. Yeah, welcome, uh, Yannicka. So you're Senior Lecturer at RMIT in the Business Behavioural Lab, is that right? Behavioural Business Lab, yes. Um, and tell us, tell us what that lab does. Um, we apply psychological uh, theory to study business decision making. So uh, we have an interdisciplinary team of people there from design, psychology, marketing, um, economics, finance, and yeah, we try to apply 
truly multidisciplinary. Yes. Which is the flavour of every month these days at <laughs> universities, right? Um, and so you've come up with this uh, uh, sans forgetica, this font, and we're obviously not on a visual medium, so we can't hold it up to the, uh, to the, to the camera. Can you describe it to us? Sure. Sans forgetica is uh, slightly backslanted and also has gaps in between the letters uh, or within the letters. Um, and this was designed according to uh, two different design principles. Mm-hmm. One of them is called uh, alignment or closure, uh-huh. and the other is typicality. Typicality. Can you break mm. that down for us? What's it mean to us? So um, the back slant uh, in the font is actually only used in cartography to indicate rivers, and we're not familiar with that. So it is very atypical for our brains to see and process um, and that's uh, we broke typicality in that sense. Right. And so, in other words, you're expecting to read something in a particular way, but you're confronted with something that's not typical, different, and therefore your brain starts to reorganise how it processes. Is that what's going on? Yeah, the brain always tries to understand things it sees, right? Because it needs to prepare for action. Um, so. When something is not typical, it needs to put in a little bit more effort to understand what it's seeing. You know, when I first had a look at Sans Forgetica, it reminded me of, of all those things you see on Facebook where you see these T-shirts and stuff where, you know, some letters are replaced by numbers and you have to sort of, rather than look at it closely, you sort of almost sort of step back and then the word becomes obvious to you. This se- seemed like a halfway font or typeface between, you know, most of the fonts we're used to that are designed to be as easy to read as possible and those super hard, weird ones that seem to be like halfway between. I reckon it is halfway between. Um, Your brain can still process it. It should not be too difficult. Mm -hmm. So this is based on a psychological principle called desirable difficulty, where it is still desirable and not too difficult, but also not too easy, like you said, like any other font that you have out there. I'm going to introduce desirable difficulty to my relationships in future. (laughs) Whereby, whereby from now on, I'm just going to make it a given that, you know, part of the fact that I'm so hopeless in relationships makes me desirable. So I'm going to get a T-shirt that says Dr. Doolittle has desirable difficulty. Okay, back to the interview. <laughs> I don't find that difficult to believe at all, at all. Um, what was the um, what's the what's the method behind this? I'm I'm also wondering about what were the prototype fonts that got us to this point. So there must have been through that methodological process. What were you discarding and, and had, in a sense, how did you end up choosing this as the one? Yeah, so we actually tested three different fonts uh, of different levels of difficulty. So according to this desirable difficulty, we wanted to design one that was slightly easy, mm-hmm. one that was very difficult and one in the middle and see if we could replicate that desirable difficulty and see if the middle one was that sweet spot of memory. Uh-huh. So the first one only has gaps. The second one has gaps in the backslant. The third one also added asymmetry to that. Uh-huh. Oh. And what, what was the motivation for it? Like, uh, what, you know, because I'm assuming most people, when they do design a typeface or a font, um, are going for simplicity. They're going for ease of reading, speed of reading, stuff that looks good to the human eye. Um, what, were, what was the sort of idea that started you off on this process? So that is that learning principle. We wanted to create something that might help uh, students study for their exam. So the idea then would be that students would create study notes that they need to remember and they would change to this font and read it in this font. Exactly. That was the idea. 
Oh, wow. So how do you measure, how do you, how do you um, apply science to see whether it's effective? Sure. We uh, invited about 100 students into the lab and uh, they were presented with word pairs, uh, for example, gals, girls, um, or stew, meat, and were asked to remember those word pairs in different fonts, so um, the three that I just explained. And uh, then after a little distraction task, they were asked to... Distraction rec- task? Yeah. Yep. Recall the second word of each pair. Mm-hmm. And we find that... Um, the word pair is presented in Sanskritika led to more uh, recall than the other two fonts that we used. Wow. What about where um, memory is more conceptual than that, where you have to remember um, ideas as opposed to necessarily facts? So I was having a conversation about this with somebody the other day um, about law. So if you were trying to remember, um, you know, precedent you would your your memory is going to very specific and particular detail um, in comparison to say wanting to recall conceptual ideas that you then need to apply to something else is there a difference for memory in that sense uh, th- I reckon there is a difference in memory in that sense we actually did a second uh, study where we had um, a uh, bits of text, about 250 words, and we had a multiple choice text, uh, test attached to it. Right. And we only uh, did a part of it in Sanskritica, like a paragraph, and we found again that uh, compared to Arial, uh, Sanskritica led to the highest uh, memory recall, and this was more conceptual. So the multiple choice questions were not about okay. actual words that were presented, but more about the content. Mm-hmm. Right. So it wouldn't be necessarily so that a particular student of a particular discipline would benefit more than any other discipline? Look, I haven't looked into that. Uh, I I hope that we can say something like that in the future, but uh, yeah. And then do you try and break down how it works? Like, I must admit, when I first looked at it, I thought to myself, is this working because it's taking me longer to read something and so it's slowing me down and it's just making me concentrate more or is it working through some other mechanism? Do you have a sense of, do you know what I mean? Like, why does it work? If it does work, because it's early days, obviously, but what's your ideas on why does it work? The idea is that it does slow you down and that you engage more with the material because you have to, your brain needs to process this and needs more time to understand what it's reading. Mm. Because also the concentration factor, you know, one of the problems I find trying to remember things is, you know, you just get so bored. You know, when you're studying, it gets that's it's so hard to overcome the boredom. And I've tried so many tricks over the years to try and get myself engaged to um, focus on stuff. Yeah. You know, is, yeah. is there a risk that you've got a whole page of this back slanting gap letter situation that you it overwhelms your brain? I reckon it would. Yeah, we we are um, advising to only use this to emphasise small parts of text. Also, because it is based on typicality, if you have everything in the same font, you get used to it, and that takes away the effect of memory recall that we were intending to include in this. My handwriting is backslanted on its own, so does that mean I wouldn't get the benefits of sans Sanskritica? You might not. <laughs> wouldn't it be interesting if it turns out that the only reason that a whole lot of us, you know, do well in exams is because we've got crap handwriting and we've been sans forgetting ourselves our whole life? Yeah, I've always been criticised for my backward slanting handwriting, so maybe I've actually had this little trick up my sleeve all the while that I didn't know about. So where do you take it? What happens next? Mm. 
We want to, of course, replicate this on a larger scale, but uh, we've heard uh, people, for example, um, contacted us saying that it helped them with their dyslexia to read, so I would love to look into that further. Um, and you, also you know, that is really interesting, because, look, I'm, no, I'm like... I know so little about dyslexia, it's almost embarrassing, but a couple of my good friends have it, and so they do various things. Recently, I was working, having to read out a book um, with um, a book that I wrote with Catherine Devaney, and Catherine has dyslexia, and she has all sorts of fonts and also colours that Mm. she uses that helps her dyslexia. And so when she had to do her reading, she got, um, you know, a copy of our book in and, you know, changed it to a font, had colours, practiced reading and, of course, various other things. Yeah, it's mm. it's really interesting because when I when this first crossed my path, I've been getting lots of media, which is fabulous to see. So when I first heard about it, I, I downloaded the free converter mm-hmm. um, that you just whip into Chrome and I cut and paste a bit of my own work. And I realised that um, aside from memory, the benefit that I see for myself with it is um, when I do editing of my own work. And so when I've been writing for however long and whatever quantity, it's really hard to self-edit. You just miss so many mistakes when you're doing the editing. And I, so normally what I would do would be to just do Control Alt and select all, and then change the font. So I do the editing in a different font than the one that I wrote in, and. When I did this with Sans Forgetic, I thought this might just apply in the same kind of way. The brain just rewires. Absolutely. Um, you're not the first to tell us this, that ah. uh, people use it for editing as well. So many applications that we can still look into. Great. Hey, you, hey this is just uh, out of... Is there money in fonts? You know, is there... <laughs> what happens if it turns out to be successful? The app's for free, right? Yeah. This is, this I know is you're offering free. it for free, yeah. but, like, is there money in fonts to people who invent fonts? You know, it's like I always th- you know, I'm always looking for these, you know, sneaky ways to make money, you know, like supposedly the, you know, <laughs> the person... Yeah, that's the one, that's the one um, mechanism I've not adopted. <laughs> you know, like, the, you know, I invented the little bit that goes on the end of the shoelaces and now I'm a billionaire. Will yes. you be a billionaire? Can you become a, a font billionaire? I'm not sure if you can become a font billionaire, but of course you can understand that certain brands have yep. their own fonts and would use them and you could make money that way. Right. Or you use this font um, in an app or uh, uh, that, mm. you know, uh, that increases advertising or things like that. Um, but uh, um, my intention is to make knowledge uh, yes. available You've for You've got free. good intentions because I love, I mean, <laughs> when, I read, when I read about your department, you know, your, um, you know, it's sort of this business psychology sort of link, you know, I, I, in my head, I said to myself, it's the department of Freakonomics. You know, Freakonomics, for those who have forgotten out there, was it were a couple of books that came out about oh, 10 years ago now, um, which were basically on this topic. This, it was written by a journalist who was interested in psychology and an economics person. And they basically, you know, a couple of great books looking at the psychology behind every um, economic principle you can think of from how much a loaf of bread costs to why we have cars that run a certain way it's just fantastic stuff so your whole department does this sort of stuff yes that is pretty much what we do right yeah we we do try to use our powers for good yeah yeah but and is uh, is freakonomics your bible then or is that no it's not (laughs) not our bible i do listen to the podcast yeah it's a podcast Uh, too it's great yeah i love it Oh, it is fa- fascinating. Um, sorry, um, did I interrupt you there? No, no, no. So where are we going with... Um, well, where are we up to? Did, You're in charge did you of your ask what's, what, <laughs> what? Did you ask... Uh, what's, what's next? Um, you, so you've got some more... More um, science. ...writing up to do? 
Uh, we're writing up the paper for publication, of course, but also more science. Uh, correctly, uh, we want to see where this can go and uh, whether we can apply it in different areas. Uh, we're working with people across the world now that have contacted us to see what we can do. So, yeah, very exciting. exciting. And uh, maybe there will be a similar type of tool out there that will help students study in the future. Three. Triple. Hey, you're listening to Radiotherapy, as I said, on the panel this morning, myself, Dr. Doolittle, the panel beater, pressing the buttons and doing everything else that's required. Dr. Capri, our resident GP, and Dr. Trainer Wheels, our favourite medical student in the Southern Hemisphere, but not mm. the Northern Hemisphere, we've met nicer ones up there. <laughs> um, and uh, what are we over to? Capri, you're going to talk about the subtle art of saying no. Yes, so... Um I'm wanting. I read an article this week uh, talking about why clinicians, uh, why clinicians say no, and recommending on how we should say no to reduce conflict and and complaints that um, clinicians get because they're not um, forthcoming with various requests that patients have. And I thought that part of the problem is that patients. There's a bit of a a discrepancy between what patients' expectations are and what the reality of what a clinician can actually do within the boundaries of their ethical obligations, legal obligations, and then their own moral obligations, although that's probably the least important of the, the first two because, obviously, as a, as a clinician, you are there to do what's best for the patient and you should be able to put, you should be able to put aside your own um, sort of moral... Um, uh, boundaries to some degree because basically you're there um, to, to do what the patient needs. However, I thought it was important to talk about, uh, to sort of just um, thrash out a little bit why doctors or our clinicians um, can't always fulfil the brief that a patient brings to them about what they want to get done. So we get, clinicians get lots of requests, you know, most um, in patient um, clinician interactions, uh, there's a request at the beginning, the middle or the end, and the re- requests are usually related to having some service provided. And I guess uh, the problem there is that patients feel like and and the the words that we get is I just need I just need a script I just need a referral to I just need you to sign on the dotted line and then I'll be out of here yep. and it's such a simple request and it seems so reasonable from the patient side to you know you can just do this and I'll be out of your way and they don't really understand what's involved in why I can or can't actually do that for you. And so I, I kind of wanted to talk a bit, a bit about the kind of requests we get and why we can't necessarily um, go ahead, you know, um, fill that, fulfil that request for them. So yeah, it's quite interesting. Before you go, it is quite interesting because I'm just trying to think about, you know, that, in, you know, that initial part. Some patients are coming along to their doctor or clinician to... Um, you know, because they've got an illness and they just want advice. But a lot are coming along with a re- an actual question request. Yes. And I, I see it a lot too, because especially these days, because everyone's read Dr. Google. So most people come along and they already have an idea of what they want. Mm. Like if they, they don't come along and say, I've got a cough and a runny nose. They come along and say, I need a script for antibiotics, doc. I've got a, um, I've got a, a cold. Exactly. And then the doc's there saying, well, actually, antibiotics don't work for 99.9% of common colds. There are viruses, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> is it? So it's, it is, is it, was that a cough? Um, that was, <laughs> Panel just Very coughed timely. on you. That's like when um, when someone yawns and everyone else 
across yours. If I mention a cough, there's <coughs> a few of us about to cough. But um, that's exactly it. Is it is quite a transactional process, yeah. isn't it? I mean, going there's Dr. Do- Google, doctor. there's the person over the fence, there's the there's so much of the natural um, remedies now as well, and patients have a lot of preconceived ideas of the, be- the test that they want, the treatment that they want, the specialist they need to see, and so we get lots of requests, be it by email, by letter left at the desk, phone calls, and, and you know, the day consists of, you know, up to 20 requests, and that's without actually having the opportunity to discuss that with the patient. They just expect that to be to be done for them. So, and I, I think that patients don't, as I said before, don't understand the responsibilities of a clinician in why they decide to actually to uh, agree to do that or or why they can't. Right. And so, so the top five reasons that, as I polled my wonderful peers at the practice I work at, and the, the I hope most, none of them were hurt. No, I know it was quite it was quite aggressive boom, of boom. me. Uh, but <laughs> the most common What's, that's what, like a joke from Benny Hill days, isn't it? The, anyway, most, the most common reason that we're uh, that a patient re- the patient the type of request that rejected is a type of test. Right. Okay. So patients want a certain test, as you've said, you know, because they've got advice from or some information from somewhere and often and that's the most likely the most um, common reason that we say no because a lot of the tests are either inappropriate um, or we don't actually know what the problem is that the patient thinks they need the test for. Right. So they leave a request and you say, well, sorry, I need to see the patient. Yep. I can't just write a request for some test if I don't know, one, you know, is there a problem that we need to do other tests? Do you actually have something that I need to, um, you know, take a full history on, examine you and decide, yes, it might be that test, but there might be other ones so that a lot we of also people, need to do. So a lot of people just turn up wanting a test. Doc, can you write me a check for a chest Absolutely. x-ray? Absolutely. Doc, can you um what yeah yeah can, so the they te- figure their own yeah i need out. a I'm, the common ones are a neck x-ray i need an x-ray of my neck i've got a sore neck i've got a sore back i want a ct of my back i'll just come back from I overseas want, i need some specific yeah travelers I need tests. a genetic test there's lots of dubious tests yep. around at the moment there's the mthfr mm, test which every second person oh i don't know what it, it is mth what is it uh the oh i'm so sorry it's I some methylation something or other enzyme it thing for? it's a genetic test for this enzyme right but it's Heterozygous in almost yeah, everybody. Everyone is heterozygous for it, and which almost. is meaningless. Which means and what? It's meaningless. Clinically, right. it's meaningless. Right. But so it's a te- you basically. Basically, it's a test that proves that you've been inappropriately reading the uh, exactly. internet and misinterpreted information. Exactly. Having said that, a lot of patients people aren't going to be happy. In. You know, we're going to get a lot of comments on our Facebook Ooh, saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. "I'm NTH." Uh, forewarning. I don't even know what it is. Oh, <laughs> I haven't even read it up. The problem is a lot of patients come in with these requests and the reason why I think there's a lot of conflict and unhappiness is that doctors don't... Oh, clinicians... Ha- either don't have the time or don't spend the time to explain why that test is not necessarily in your best interest. Because we're really bound by this, we have an ethical obligation to make sure that the tests, the referrals, any request is either suitable or in the best interests of the patient. And if that brief is fulfilled, then we, we're far more comfortable to fulfil a request. However, we can only do that once you speak to a patient, you examine a patient, you go through all the information, risks, benefits, harms, and then you say, OK, on balance, I think it is appropriate that I order this a test or make this referral. OK, I got that one. By the, but we got sidetracked. What were the, that was the first of your top five when you, yeah, when okay. you did your polling. 
when you so, did your Nelson's poll of that's right. 1, the other ones are, no the other ones are prescriptions, which yeah. you touched oh, yeah. on. Yeah, I just need a script for. I'll be out of your way. I just need a script for an antibiotic. I've got a cold. Yeah, okay. and I get that all the time for benzodiazepines. You yes. know, so many people say to me, "Oh, by yeah, the way, painkillers." Give me a script for temazepam and that. And that was such a massive problem that the yeah. government changed the regulations a number of years ago and said, unless it's one of your regular patients, you're not allowed to write scripts yes. for them. Which was beautiful because that because I used to struggle to say no to that one. Yes, you know, because yeah. it just you know, it's like it's a ten minute conversation explaining why these drugs are so crap and yes. why you're better off having some insomnia than um, risk getting addicted to these crap yeah. drugs. Yeah. And so it was such a long one. These days I can summarise it down to, oh, look, I'm sorry, the regulations. And then I say, I'm happy to explain if you want. And most people don't want the explanation. Yeah. Um, so, but, but I think part of it is that, you know, either you're not explaining it or you're explaining things badly. And that is part yep. of the problem. You can't... I'm not suggesting patients come in with, um, you know, requests that aren't valid, but it's the way you deal with that and the way you explain it and the way you come to this collaborative arrangement where you think, okay, on balance, I I think this is the way forward. So what was um, number three then? Uh, number three is uh, referral to specialists. Oh, yeah. In fact, sometimes you get the request after they've been to the specialist right. and it may be an inappropriate <laughs> referral because they're going for something that isn't actually appropriate. Do and a whole lot of them come along and say, will you refer me to Dr. Doolittle? I've heard him on the radio and he sounds really good. They say, good. except for. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other one is certification, a certificate for an illness or a disability or a condition that there's no actual evidence for. So mental health plans, for example, people come in and say, I'm stressed, I need to get a mental health plan to see a psychologist. Well, no, that one's OK. See, I was about are, to pick you no, up no, on I that one. No, no, I beg your pardon. There are Because they mightn't want to tell you. It might be that they're not giving you... But they have to, though. That's part of the, you know, part of... Uh, but what if they don't? What a if mental it's health plan like, requires say, a 30 to 40-minute consultation to get one. And a diagnosis. And a diagnosis. And you've got to... But is it OK? Like, what I'm thinking of, say yes. someone's suffering from some form of abuse. Yes. And uh, people who have suffered from abuse often have incredible issues about who they trust and who they tell. Yes. So for me, like often, for example, my first two or three appointments, if people come along and they hint that it's an abuse issue, I'll say to them, feel free not to talk about what the actual issue is mm. until you feel more comfortable. And we talk around it for a while and we talk about other things. Now, so what I'm thinking of is what if a patient, I'm speaking fast to get to the point, yes. but what if a patient comes along and says, I want to see a psychologist um, and they give you a bullshit excuse because they don't feel they want to say it yet. Okay, for me, the problem is with why we even need to be doing as as clinicians, why we need to be doing that whole process. I think it, it takes 10 minutes to do what you're saying, sit with someone and, and realise they're in a situation where they would benefit from, from psychological therapy. Why do I have to go through this 30 to 40 minutes performance to come up with this this document signed by me that has to fulfil so many right. different See, I criteria? I just bullshit it and but I you, just... Yeah, and, well, I that's fraud. And that's the other... Well, that's the other I thing that I'd I come to. And justify the mean. The patient says they need to see a psychologist. We'll, they look distressed. What's the harm? Yeah. You can't. And that's the and that's the other part of explaining to patients. But I can say patients. distress of unknown origin. Yeah, but you've got to spend thirty minutes, forty minutes with the patient. Okay. You know, it's a Medicare thing. It becomes a a time based. Um, uh, uh, procedure and that's the other part of what I think patients don't understand as well when you're providing a document verifying something mm. or saying they've been unwell and couldn't um, make their flight to Namia or whatever it is it's a legal document yep. it has to be authentic it has to be factual you can't just and they'll say I just write that I fell over or something <laughs> and it sounds simple but I think what and it's the same with backdating certificates you know there's a leak a le, there are legal there's a legal format and we can't breach that and so I just use the word fraud and this is my medical re- if, if patients actually don't like 
the explanation, which is very fair, I'll say, well, look, I'm not willing to put my medical uh, registration on the line for something like that. Capri, are you the odd one out, though? Like, mm. um, I, can I just preface where that question's coming from yes. um, is that I've seen from my teaching side of my world, um, seen an exponential rise in number of students who are on some kind of... Um, mm equitable learning plan right and that's partly to do because the services are now available partly to do because those conversations are being had and Mm. students are now raising it um but come due date for essays my intro i know like like the tick of the clock i know that the monday or the the friday before the sunday of the due date Mm. i'm going to get a suite of emails from people with doctor certificates Mm. well i i don't think i'm i don't think i'm a lone wolf at all i think but i that is part of the problem where we all need to be responsible and try and do the same thing so that we're not putting the next doctor mm. in that position where they say, well, the last doctor did it. Um, I know what you're saying. It is a problem. Um, I, always make sh- I always like to think that you would be doing that kind of thing with a patient that you know well, and I always recommend patients see their usual doctor for those kind of certificates. But it is very it's, true. It, I sit it around is the true. pub, I know, and I hear people all. I, this is a conversation I've heard a thousand times. Oh, which oh, I need to go to a doctor. Which do you recommend? Oh, what is what sort of problem is it? Is it a serious one? If it's a serious one, go to Doctor X, Y, or Z. They're really good, but they take two weeks to get into. Oh, if it's just a certificate, go to that bloke yeah. over there. He'll sign anything. Just tell him. Oh, you need sleeping tablets. Oh, such and such. We'll just give them yeah, out to anyone. And everyone knows. And so that is part of the problem that we create our. Mm. You know, because we've got such variability in our industry. Yes. That um, that it makes it very hard for people to understand when you say no to certain requests that other people just say yes to willy-nilly and the other problem i love using the word willy-nilly the, do- the doctors who are doing well the thing that is most appropriate end up being the ones who who are the ones who are criticized for not being good doctors because they're not doing you know coming through with the requests and Absolutely, patients yeah. yeah patients often think they're the worst doctors because they didn't do what i wanted this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au